Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hej Lotta! Hej Victoria och hej du som lyssnar och varmt välkommen till ett nytt avsnitt av Hälsosnack. Ja och idag så har vi en internationell gäst här i podden så att när intervjun drar igång då kommer vi börja prata på engelska. Mm, yay! <laughs> För vi har fått träffa den brittiske läkaren Asim Malhotra som var här på besök inför den sockerfria dagen den 12 oktober. Och då var han här för att prata om sitt engagemang mot socker i Storbritannien bland annat. Ja, och doktor Asim Malhotra, han är kardiolog och en erkänd specialist inom behandling och förebyggande vård av hjärt- och kärlsjukdom. Han har en hederstitel vid Stanford University och är även en av grundarna av den oberoende organisationen Action on Sugar som bland annat var med och drev fram en särskild beskattning mot socker och sötad mat i Storbritannien. Dr. Asim är en stark drivkraft och aktivist när det kommer till socker och processad mat och kopplingen till ohälsa. Mm, och Dr. Asim han har skrivit flera böcker och studerat och publicerat rapporter och bland annat kolesterolets roll i hjärt-kärlsjukdom och ifrågasatt det utbredda användandet av statiner. Och i det här avsnittet så reder Dr. Asim ut kolesterolets roll eller snarare icke-roll när det gäller hjärt-kärlsjukdom. Vi pratar såklart om statiner men framförallt om vad som faktiskt är de underliggande orsakerna till hjärt-kärlsjukdom. Ja, så det här är verkligen ett superintressant och viktigt avsnitt. Mm. Och följ oss gärna på Instagram på ett hälsosnack med Lotto och Victoria för där har du möjlighet att diskutera veckans avsnitt och dela med dig av dina erfarenheter och funderingar. Ja, eller tipsa oss om ämnen som du skulle vilja att vi tog upp i podden eller gäster som ni skulle vilja att vi bjöd in. Och på vitalista.se så kan du också signa upp dig på vårt nyhetsbrev. Perfekt, men då tycker jag att vi drar igång intervjun. Dr. Asim, welcome. It's a great pleasure to have you on our show and we are so happy that you're taking the time to come visit us and be our guest. Good morning, Victoria and Lotta. Um, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. We really admire your work, Dr. Asim, and uh, you are in the forefront questioning the current paradigm when it comes to heart disease, what medicines we use, and really pointing to the real um, underlying issues, the underlying um, causes when it comes to heart disease. And you do this in a very bold and straightforward way. So we really are looking forward to, to sharing this and your our conversation with our audience 
audience today. But first, um, I don't know if everyone knows who you are. So could you please just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Uh, thank you, Lotta and Victoria. I'm delighted to be here uh, to speak to you today and uh, speak to your uh, audience on, on a, some very interesting topics. So uh, I am, first and foremost, I'm a doctor, medical doctor. I'm a consultant cardiologist. I qualified from Edinburgh Medical School in 2001, so I've been a practicing doctor now for over 20 years. And uh, I'm also a professor of evidence-based medicine and a change activist. So I think those are the sort of the, the three titles I would attach to myself that probably sums up who I am. And uh, heart disease, that's the number one cause of death for both men and women. Uh, so without a doubt, this is going to be an, a topic that is of great interest and relevance for uh, uh, all people listening. And uh, you are a cardiologist, so uh, naturally, we would like to get as much information as we can on what we can do to reduce our risk and potentially prevent heart disease altogether. Um, so high cholesterol, that has uh, for a long time been considered a major risk factor when it comes to heart disease. So maybe we should start there in our conversation today. Um, Maybe you can, we can ask you to tell us a little bit more about cholesterol. What is it? What does it do in the body? And what is the link to heart disease? Sure. It's a great question, Victoria, to start with. I think before answering that more specifically, I think if we take a step back, um, we have to acknowledge and accept and understand that about 80% of heart disease is related to environment and lifestyle. And probably 10 to 20% can be have a genetic basis. Um, and within those lifestyle factors, which I'll elaborate on later on, uh, one of the major um, risks associated with heart disease is diet, poor diet. When it, when it comes to cholesterol, um, it, conventional medicine, conventional wisdom, conventional cardiology practice will um, tell you that the most important thing you can do to lower your risk of heart disease is keep your cholesterol low, either through dietary uh, changes, through specifically reducing saturated fat, or through taking medications, drugs such as statins or new other cholesterol-lowering drugs. And what I have done in my journey, if you like, certainly over the last um, 10 years, is I've discovered that those uh, approaches actually are not just fatally flawed, um, but potentially counterproductive. So I will explain that shortly, but to answer your question more specifically, um, so cholesterol is you know, uh, a fatty, wax-like substance that's produced in the liver, and uh, you know, we all need cholesterol because it has a number of very important functions. Without cholesterol, we would die. So it's important, for example, to help maintain the integrity of cell membranes. It has a role in hormone production, uh, and also uh, one thing that uh, I discovered with some of the research I did, which I wasn't aware of until this point, is it likely also has a very important role in the immune system. So when you look at the where did this whole area or, or um, misunderstanding, if you like, which still continues today around cholesterol develop, uh, it, it really started from uh, several studies that were done in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 
looking at finding an association, something called the Framingham Heart Study, which started in uh, the town of Framingham, Massachusetts in the United States in the late 40s and basically followed up a population of around 5,000 people um, over several decades. Many risk factors emerged from those associations with heart disease, things like high blood pressure, smoking, linked with obesity, for example, type 2 diabetes, but high cholesterol was one of them. And when you look at that original data, what's very interesting is um, the association of heart disease, Victoria, with high cholesterol is only really there when uh, an individual's cholesterol was very high. And when I say very high, we're talking about greater than 10 millimoles per liter. I think, is that the units you use here? Is it? Yes. Okay, okay good, fine. Because in America, it's different milligrams per decimal, so we'll stick to millimoles. People will understand that better. So that association was only there when it was very high, above 10, in terms of people who are going to develop heart disease, and it was very strong in, that, in those group of people. Uh, and it was also on the other end of the spectrum, people with very low levels of total cholesterol, less than 3.8 millimoles per liter, really didn't develop heart disease, certainly up until the age of 60. Okay, and we, you, you started off by mentioning very rightly that heart disease is one of the biggest killers in the Western world. It's also the number one cause of premature death in European men. So it is a big, big problem. So, so what does that mean? Well, when you look further and try and understand that, and that's something I've researched and published on, in the people with very high levels of cholesterol, most of those people have a condition called familial hyperlipidemia, a genetic condition which they're born with very high cholesterol levels. And um, that in itself explains most of the association in people with very high levels of cholesterol. What we've discovered now, and what something I educate people on, and I'm, I'll be giving a talk later on on this, is that even in people who have FH, which is only about 1 in 250 people, by the way, who have this. So it's not very common. So right? it's quite rare. It's quite rare. But it's something certainly needs to be identified. Is that even in those people, the ones that develop heart disease versus the ones that don't. So um, around 70% uh, of women and 50% of men with FH, genetically very high levels of cholesterol, will not develop premature heart disease without any treatment. So they still have high cholesterol and they have this condition, but they don't develop heart disease. Exactly. So the next question is, is there some way of differentiating those that have high, uh, have FH who don't get heart disease versus ones that do? And when you, though obviously people listening are going to say, hold on a minute, what about good cholesterol, bad cholesterol? So this is where this interesting, uh, you know, data comes in. So LDL is considered the so-called bad cholesterol, okay? That's the conventional wisdom. LDL, low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, is considered the problem. And when you look at the FH patients of the ones that develop versus the ones that don't develop heart disease, there is no difference in their LDL, which suggests LDL is not the problem. There's something else going on. And you can actually look at risk factors. So if you're a male smoker, diabetes, essentially if you have insulin resistance, then and you are you have FH, then you are at much higher risk. When people there are two factors that have been looked into to see what is the lowest risk of heart disease in people with FH, it's low insulin, low waist circumference. So I have had several patients in the last couple of years have come to see me. In fact, they were all female, three in three in a row over the period period of about a year. And um, they were first diagnosed with FH in their fifties. So they never had their cholesterol checked, and suddenly they come with a cholesterol of 15, LDLs of 8, and they are fit and healthy, they're cycling, they look like you two, basically, very fit and, you know, active, right? No excess body fat, obvious. 
their metabolic health markers are perfect. They're not diabetic. Their blood pressure is great. Okay. Their triglycerides and HDL within the cholesterol profile is also good. That's actually a much better predictor of heart disease than LDL. So uh, what did I do with them? They were, and they were scared into, as in, it's not scared about the high cholesterol. They didn't want to go on a cholesterol-lowering drug. But their doctor, their cardiologist, a lipid specialist had seen them, had scared them and essentially said to them, unless you take a cholesterol-lowering drug, your prognosis is like someone with terminal cancer. Can you imagine being told that as a oh layperson? Oh, my God. So these people are literally just so scared, but they don't want to go on this drug, and they're a bit skeptical, and they come and see me. So what I do... All three of them had CT coronary angiograms done, essentially to look at their coronary arteries. Now, it, logic dictates if FH, if their cholesterol is a problem for them, which they've had for 50 years through the roof and never be diagnosed, they're going to have some heart disease, a degree of even a little bit, whatever, might be severe, all three of them completely normal. So I was able to reassure them, say, listen, for you, your cholesterol is not a problem. That's the end of it. So... Um, so wh- where do we go from here? Well, you know, to expand beyond what I mentioned earlier about lowering saturated fat in the diet or taking drugs, um, I carried out a systematic review with two cardiologists published in BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine last year. And the conventional wisdom is this, which influences guideline boards around the world, in the UK, in America, is that there is this mantra, okay, literally a mantra, almost like a religious mantra, which is um, espoused by many doctors, certainly lipid specialists, cardiologists, and they say this, for every one millimole lowering of LDL, for everybody, okay, there is a 20% relative risk reduction in you developing, having a heart attack stroke, or well, let's say cardiovascular events, okay, they use this term. But it didn't make sense, so me and two other cardiologists, because there was a lot of contradictory data out there, I thought, well, is this actually true? And this information comes from actually a very uh, respected group of scientists in Oxford University who um, I'm sure mean well, but I think have a very strong bias in producing these guidelines from their, their own analysis of data, which they, no one else has been able to see how they've done this. Um, and that bias is um, both intellectual because they have made their careers on this, um, you know, pushing out these, the, you know, these, these publications and these analysis and changing guidelines, um, but also financial, in my view, because they have received hundreds of millions in funding for research from pharmaceutical companies that manufacture cholesterol and drugs. So we thought, okay, well, let's just try and see, is this claim correct? So we took all of the data on people um, from drug trials, randomized trials, so we use the highest quality data to see was there a clear correlation in people at high risk of heart disease or people at lower risk that if you reduce their LDL, is there a reduction in cardiovascular events? You know, is there a clear correlation that if you reduce it from whatever one, you know, from five to four or four to three or whatever? And the answer was no. So this claim is not supported by the independent totality of evidence. So that means that should not in any way, as far as I'm concerned, be a primary focus or maybe even a focus at all in reducing the risk of someone developing heart disease. In my view, I don't think we should be lowering their cholesterol per se. We should be doing other things through lifestyle that will improve the cholesterol profile 
which is based upon the total cholesterol divided by the HDL, the good cholesterol, so-called. That and the triglycerides in HDL as well, that is a much better predictor. And there is no drug that has been shown to be effective to do that and reduce, out, you know, uh, improve outcomes, heart attacks, strokes, and death. And therefore, the approach should almost certainly be lifestyle. <laughs> but cholesterol can also be a good thing, especially for women and we're getting older. It can also be protective. It, it helps our immune system. So it's kind of counterproductive yeah. to so go this path. It's a great point, Lotta. So um, to expand on what you just said, um, in 2016, I did some a systematic review with, with several international scientists to see, because the framing data I mentioned earlier was only relevant up to the age of 50 or 60. What's interesting is, once you hit 60, we found in over 60s, one, there was no correlation whatsoever between LDL cholesterol and heart disease, and an inverse correlation with all-cause mortality. In other words, statistically, the higher your LDL, if you're over 60, the less likely you are to die. And the only plausible explanation for that is, as you've said already, is that older people are more vulnerable to dying from infections like pneumonia or stomach infections, and LDL seems to be protective for that, which is fascinating, isn't it? Very, right? very. And then very recently, a Scandinavian study, interestingly, published in BMJ um, towards the end of last year, was, a, was the most up-to-date, um, largest study looking at what, what is the optimal level of LDL cholesterol for longevity, for lifespan. Okay, And they looked at 100,000 people aged between 20 and 80 and followed them up over 10 years. And what they found was the optimal level of LDL is 3.6 when it comes to lifespan. In fact, the range between 3.4 and 3.9. But if you go to your doctor, you will get alarmed or you'll be told that your LDL is high if it's above 3. Okay. <laughs> you see now you see now why Dr. Asim's work is so important? <laughs> yes, because everyone is not still not convinced about this, right? Because when patients see their doctors still, uh, if the doctors consider, consider their LDL being too high, they are going to be put on a statin drug. Yeah. Probably. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and I just want to add here, it's important for people to also understand this, which I've written about and people can read up on it. It's that statins do lower LDL, but they have other properties which is where their small benefit likely comes from. They are also drugs that have an anti-inflammatory benefit and slightly anti-clotting benefit. And we know heart disease is an inflammatory condition, um, which is also exacerbated by problems with clotting, you know, either in a short term or longer term for many people. So that's likely where that small, you know, one in a hundred people who haven't got heart disease may develop, you know, may benefit from a statin and about, you know, and one in 39 in people with heart disease will have a heart attack prevented from taking a statin. So that is a separate discussion um, around the benefits of statins for people, but it should all be through what we call informed or shared decision-making that patients need to be empowered with that individual, with that information that's um, important to them on how they can reduce their risk of heart disease, whether it's taking a drug or through lifestyle changes. Because, or there, both. because there are some side effects with yeah. taking statins. What could they be? So there's a, big, a very controversial area around statins and side effects. The controversy isn't that the side effects don't exist. It's about how common they are. Um, the published evidence 
all pharmaceutical industry influenced, okay, let's just be honest about this, would say that significant side effects, the, the most common one being fatigue and muscle pain, affects less than 1% of people. Real world data suggests it's much higher, and that range from different studies suggests anything from 15% up to maybe even 40 or 50%. But it's also relevant on the group being studied. So if you're older, you have lots of other comorbidities, other illnesses, you're more likely to get side effects. If you're younger and fitter, you're less likely. But the people that may, be more bene may benefit more from the statins are the people at higher risk. So that's the, um, that's the uh, dilemma in, in terms of how we manage these people. Uh, but the most common is muscle pain, fatigue, it can cause stomach upset, memory disturbance, erectile dysfunction. I mean, almost every system in the body can potentially be affected by statin side effects. The positive news is these side effects are almost always reversible within a few weeks of stopping the drug. So I often with my patients, if I think it could be a statin side effect, the first thing I ask them, is this symptom you're complaining of interfering with your quality of life. And that's very subjective. And most people will say yes or no. They all know. Yeah, okay, it's a little niggle here and there, but it, it doesn't bother me, doctor. No, this is a problem. I'm not sleeping well, blah, blah, blah. Okay, let's try you cold turkey for a few weeks off the statin. That's not going to give you... The, the chances of harm are very, very small. So can you go cold turkey? Oh, completely, yeah. I do it all the time in my patients, all the time. And then I ask them to get back to me or they go to their doctor and say, if their symptoms improve significantly, either discontinue the statin or go on a lower dose but understand what the benefit is for you because that's important a lot of people actually when they get told that the benefit is only one percent from industry-sponsored trial data this is not stuff i'm making up this is there you know it's that that, that is absolutely correct what we're, what we're telling patients a lot of them decide they just don't want to carry on but if they do that's fine as well um and uh, that conversation needs to be had with with either myself or their doctor you know once they've tried going cold turkey off the statin. But, you know, you see that some of the effects of coming off the statin can be so dramatic, Victoria, that, you know, you hear these anecdotes of old people bed-bound for months who can't move because they just feel crippled, because they think it's their old age. Someone stops their statin and they're dancing again within a few weeks. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You shouldn't underestimate it. No. No. Absolutely not. And and there's also, even if you said that studies affect other areas as besides lowering cholesterols, uh, I, I want to go there. What are the risk factors of heart disease? And uh, are there any, what should we look for in our blood markers for those signs? Yeah. So the most important risk factors for heart disease are probably the same most important risk factors that we've identified for many chronic diseases. And we're talking about risk of stroke, Alzheimer's, probably cancer to a large degree. Um, and those are, I, I talk about metabolic health and metabolic syndrome. So you want, so the ideal optimal metabolic health, which by the way, just to give some context here, um, only one in eight people in the United States, adults, have all these markers in normal range. Only one in four adults in the U.S. between the ages of 20 and 40 have it in the normal range. So this is a real problem. And it's mainly linked to excess body fat, mainly. Okay? And that's also a problem because you do all these studies on people that are sick or have a metabolic unfunctioning body and you draw conclusions out of that. It's not a, you, you think, oh, we do a study over a healthy population, but no. 
they're not. And then we draw conclusions out of that towards the healthy, uh, but most of them are sick. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's, it's estimated, before I give you those metabolic health markers, um, certainly in the UK, I, I suspect from what I've heard, I think you're a bit better in Sweden, but certainly in the UK, um, 80% slightly more men, slightly less women, but roughly on average 80% of adults in the UK have uh, are what we call, there's a term called overfat. So they have excess body fat that is going to increase their risk of health problems. And that is essentially belly fat. So the BMI, which I don't know if you still use here, and they use it in the UK, and it's nonsense because it doesn't take into consideration your body fat percentage, your age, your ethnicity, muscle mass, right? So BMI, I don't, I think is, is nonsense, so-called body mass index, you divide your weight in kilograms by your height and meter squared, and you get a number. More than 30 is obese, 25 to 30 is overweight, 18 to 25 is normal weight, right? And if you, you do a lot of weight training, you get heavier, and then you get lower BMI or higher BMI. Exactly, so. exactly, absolutely. Having said that, though, sorry, on that point, there is also a bit of a misconception there, so it's interesting. Um, if you look at American football players who have very high muscle mass, once they stop playing, they have very high prevalence of increase in heart disease. So I think we shouldn't be overly obsessed about the high muscle mass stuff. And bodybuilders don't have particularly good lifespans, by the way. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's a good point. Yeah. So let's just, I think we just focus on the metabolic health stuff, but really, um, but could that be, uh, also, even if you have big muscle mass, you can still be metabolically oh, unhealthy. Absolutely. And your diet might not be perfect. Even if you've got a six pack, you know, I've been seeing patients in their forties who are personal trainers and exercising, you know, a lot have got six packs and are coming with heart attacks. And when I take the history from them, Lotta, um, the biggest issue, which uh, you know is probably a, a separate discussion, maybe we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later, is they've got a lot of stress. They're sleeping four or five hours a night for the last five years. Their stress levels are through the roof. They're also very high functional people in their work and their jobs. They think it's all about the, you know, even their diet is not that bad, exercising 10 hours a week. They've not sorted their stress levels out, boom, heart attack. Mm. So this is something that, again, people should not ignore. It's a big, big you know, area, which I think needs a lot more attention than it's getting. That um, makes me think of something I saw on your Instagram feed, that exercise is completely useless in preventing heart disease if your diet is wrong. Absolutely. Absolutely. The first um, sign of heart problem, what's going on at a cellular level is endothelial dysfunction. So endothelial cells are the cells that line the inner, the arteries of the heart. And the first thing to go wrong when you develop plaques and these stenosis and all these things that lead to heart attacks is endothelial dysfunction. And in fact, if you are, they've done some studies showing that if, for example, you do a run and you do a good exercise and then you treat yourself with a sugary, like a cake or sugary drink afterwards, you basically negate all the effects of the exercise. Yeah. And I mean, that's so common. People <laughs> oh, exercise yeah. and they think, oh, I've, I've been working out today so I can, I can have that cinnamon roll I or I can have that it's chocolate bar. It's because I've been told that it's about a healthy weight, so it doesn't matter, you know, and it's about exercise, the exaggerated benefits of exercise. I'm a big proponent of it. I'm very active myself, or almost obsessively so. But I realized it's not, you know, I'm doing it for mental health. I'm doing it for other reasons. I'm doing it partly because I'll be honest, I'm an, I'm an addict. I'm an exercise addict. I'm fighting my addiction. Okay. <laughs> so um, myself, honestly, I'm having to do that. I mean, having to battling my exercise addiction for the last 20 on years, but I know that it's not having that much of a positive effect on my health as a diet would be. But um, coming back to answer the question yes, about sorry. the metabolic health. So I'm um, oh, sorry, it's my fault. And we're digressing. So many interesting things to talk about. Um, 
So blood pressure, okay? Number one risk factor, by the way, for death worldwide, okay? The blood pressure is the big issue. Diabetes, of course, are linked, but um, you want your blood pressure ideally to be less than 120 over 80. From 120 over 80 to 140 over 90, you have this, um, you're in what we call prehypertension. So your risk is already increased at that stage. Once you get above 140 over 90, you have mild hypertension. Now, so that's one. The interesting thing about blood pressure, though, very briefly, is that the drugs to treat blood pressure don't have any effect in preventing heart attack, strokes, and death until you're over 160 or over 100. But most people are being managed, their blood pressure is being managed by their doctor just giving them a pill if they say their average is 145 over 95 or 150 over you know, 95 or something like that. What they're not being told is that the evidence is clear from the trials that even if you lower your blood pressure with a pill in that range, it's not going to prevent you having heart attack, stroke, or death. So imagine that scenario where people just think, okay, I'm just measuring my blood pressure, I'm taking this pill, but they're not doing the lifestyle interventions that are going to bring their blood pressure down equally, if not more effectively, and not even go into the area where they need a pill. Because there is some underlying cause. Why is your blood pressure higher? Yeah. And uh, you're not addressing that. Absolutely, which I'll come on to, which, yeah. which, which, which kind of brings in all the metabolic health markers sort of um, together, if you like, in terms of the root yeah. cause. But blood pressure is one. Blood pressure is, is, is one of them. Um, your average blood glucose control, so something called HbA1c, which I'm sure you're familiar with, you want it to be ideally less than 5.7%. Between 5.7 and 6.4 is pre-diabetes. Above 6, 6.5 then becomes type 2 diabetes. So that is the other marker that you, you know, optimal metabolic health from a blood glucose perspective, your average HbA1c should be less than 5.7. Then you've got um, triglycerides, okay, one of the part of the cholesterol profile. That should be less than 1.7 millimoles per liter. And your HDL, so-called good cholesterol, should be greater than 1 millimole per liter. And then finally, waist circumference. Everybody can check that themselves. They don't need to go to a doctor or whatever. And um, for Caucasians, it should be uh, less than 102 centimeters for a male. Okay, so you measure it just, you know, um, around the belly button, essentially, in a relaxed state. Okay, not people taking deep breath in or whatever. Um, and less than 90 centimeters for a lady, for a female. For people from South Asian backgrounds, which I'm genetically, you know, that's where I'm from, it should be less than 90 centimeters for a man. So it's less and less than 85. So just very briefly, people from South Asian backgrounds, we seem to be more at risk of these sorts of conditions like heart disease, et cetera, et cetera, at lower levels of body fat compared to Caucasians. And we also have genetically lower muscle mass and lower cardiorespiratory fitness. So you can imagine a lot of the people, for example, with the COVID pandemic, a lot of people who are adversely affected in those countries like America and the UK were people who already had much worse metabolic health to start with and didn't even know it because they're being told you've got a healthy weight. It's fine, you know. Your BMI is good. Exactly. So this is a big problem. I've written and published on that and advocated for that as well because that's also being neglected. There's a huge racial bias in the research as well, unfortunately. That's, yeah. I don't think that's necessarily been a deliberate thing, but it's now, it needs to be acknowledged and we need to think, hold on a minute. You know, these groups of people that we're testing statins on, for example, almost all Caucasian, it may not have an effect in people from South. They're all different effect, right? So there's all of that there. Um, so we've got blood pressure. We've talked about blood, uh, glucose, triglycerides, HDL, waist circumference. So those are the five markers of metabolic health. If three of those are in the abnormal range, you have something called metabolic syndrome. And metabolic syndrome is associated with the highest risk of heart attack or stroke or death in the next 10 years. 
So 66% of people who are admitted with heart attacks now will actually fulfill the diagnosis of metabolic syndrome, but 75% will have so-called normal LDL, normal cholesterol, which is obviously clearly not the problem. Um, so that is what you know. I, I talk about, I focus on, um, I think we should, it's something, and by the way, most conventional doctors don't measure these things, as in they will not be thinking about metabolic health and looking at those markers. And what they also won't be doing, which is where the positive message comes, is that you can reverse metabolic syndrome within just a few weeks of purely changing your diet. That's it. Can you say that again? You can, change, you can reverse metabolic syndrome within 21 to 28 days. And I write about this in my latest book, Saturn Free Life, um, within, uh, yeah, from purely changing your diet. Yeah, let so, that sink in, everyone. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. But that's not what we're being told most no. of the time. Because there's no money to be made in, in prescribing a diet to people, you know, and that is part of, you know, if you expand out, and this is what I'm, you know, I advocate for, try to get to the causes of the causes, is ultimately that a lot of the decisions people are making about their health and the prescriptions that are being dished out are essentially um, determined by big corporations, by the food industry and the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, and uh, companies do not make a lot of money from people eating clean foods either because it's the processed foods that they can charge a higher margin for. So there's really no interest. Uh, there isn't, and, and, you know... From their perspective, there, there doesn't need to be an interest because they are profit-making businesses. They have no... Um, in fact, they have a fiduciary or legal requirement to make profits for their shareholders. They do not. The drug companies, pharmaceutical companies, do not have any legal requirement to produce or give you the best treatment. Although most people believe that to be the case, but that's not true. The real scandal, if you like, is that doctors academic institutions and medical journals that have a responsibility to patients and scientific integrity collude with industry for financial gain. Yeah. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. That's really sad. And it is When you start thinking about it. It is sad. And I think that um, I, 
as a human, I intrinsically believe in the goodness of people. And I think that most people want to do the right thing. But, uh, and also, we can change this if people are made aware through democratic processes that ensure there is greater protection um, f of the public from the manipulations and excesses of industry. And, the and they are only doing their job because we're but letting we are, them. We, exactly. But the structures have been created, the laws, etc., are not, you know, uh, ultimately when you go into the roots of these problems, Victoria, um, you know, and this has happened throughout history, throughout every, uh, any revolution, ultimately the biggest impact on people's livelihoods, their health, their sense of well-being, their freedoms, come from changing the law. And we have many laws that are both unjust, unethical, and most importantly, undemocratic. They have been imposed on people without them knowing on, uh, about it. And if they were fully informed, the public would say this is not acceptable. So one of the things I'm working on as I move forward as a chair of the Public Health Collaboration, which is a, a, a new charity that's been set up in the UK um, that's made up of doctors and, and patients, essentially, um, is, is we are writing a manifesto to actually address all of these issues. Good. <laughs> Good. Because it's time that people get to know about this now so we can do something about it. And, and, and we know we are a strong voice in the UK and we wish we had a doctor uh, that was doing the same work here in Sweden because here it's been totally silent and it's been so obvious during the uh, COVID epidemic that no one is talking about uh, the, the health of the people, the metabolic dysfunction, because yeah. I, they know that, uh, I read that they know that overweight They, they see a lot more overweight people in the ICUs, and uh, that is a problem. But no one is talking about it. It's just so one-sided, and that is frustrating. I'm not saying the things that they do are bad. I'm just saying that there's another way as well yes. that we need to do because yeah. the human, the Western, the people in the Western world are so they're, they're not good. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, they're not healthy. And, and some of this is because of lack of knowledge. I think a lot of it is lack of knowledge amongst the medical profession but then it's coupled with also um and not enough people who are aware of it speaking out and taking a stand because it does take you know it's not easy no um but it's necessary you know we have to take a stand on this uh you know we are uh, ultimately for me my primary responsibilities to my patient You know, that I want to do everything I can to help them, that patient. And therefore, I'm an advocate for patients. I'm an advocate for their rights, for their health. And um, Harvey Milk, who was the uh, famous uh, gay rights activist, one of the quotes he said is that rights are only won by people who make their voices heard. Yeah. Yes. So let us talk a little bit about what we can do. Uh, ourselves because there is a lot we can do and we've all already talked a little bit about saturated fat because that has been the culprit for a long time but uh, you're saying that it actually is not however sugar is so tell yeah. us a little bit about that yeah so the saturated fat which is the foods uh, commonly associated high you know uh, being high in foods such as dairy and red meat for example and butter um this is very clear now that that you know and i've been involved in putting research out and writing analyses and editorials and campaigning on this issue that it's very clear that there is no link 
with eating saturated fat and heart disease, certainly from nutritious foods. There is nothing. The original flaw in that hypothesis came from the fact that, yes, saturated fat can raise LDL cholesterol, which we've talked about isn't that big of an issue. But even if you accept that it has a, LDL as a problem, what saturated fats also do is they raise HDL quite significantly. And if you look at all the cardiovascular risk calculators, the, the conventional you know, determinants, these, these calculators for helping you understand what your risk of a heart attack or stroke is in the next 10 years, they use total cholesterol divided by HDL. So at the very least, we can say that saturated fat is neutral. It's not, I'm not going to say it's going to prevent you getting heart disease, but it's not going to cause it either, right? And you can enjoy it as part of a nutritious, healthy diet because a lot of these foods, which we mentioned, are very nutritious, yeah. Whether it's red meats or whether it's dairy, you know, they have a, they're very nutritious foods. And they eggs. are good for your body. So, you know, that's one thing that people need to be fully aware of, that eating steak or having cheese or butter is not going to give you a heart attack. Please, if you're listening, it is complete nonsense. And you can look up the research. You can look at whether, you know. So, so I think that's the, the first thing to say about saturated fat. When I started my journey, one of the first things I did is I was the, um, you know, I was a co-founder of an organization in the UK called Action on Sugar. And I was uh, probably the first doctor, certainly in the UK, to highlight the harms on a, on a, on a, a mainstream level of sugar and wrote in the BMJ and, and did my own analysis, investigation, all this. I mean, you look at sugar in very basic terms. First of all, there's no nutritional, you know, nutritional value. The body doesn't require any sugar. We're talking about, you know, and, um, and we know the consumption is very, very high in the population, in many populations, uh, where the World Health Organization has now set a maximum limit for an adult in terms of sugar, teaspoons of sugar a day at six. Ideally, no more than six teaspoons of sugar. But to give you perspective, Victoria, one candy bar, we don't have to name a particular brand, but one regular chocolate or candy bar has about nine teaspoons of sugar in it. To add to that, um, and I'll talk about this in tomorrow in my talk on sugar, is that the U.S. Department of Agriculture um, had many years earlier, like in 2009, I think, had actually done a recommendation for children as well, aged between, say, four and eight. And the recommendation maximum limit for children was three teaspoons. But a lot of these kids are having two or three of these bars a day. So certainly in the U.K., we worked out that the average sugar consumption in the U.K. was around 22 teaspoons of sugar a day. Right. So, you know, two to three times at least more than the maximum limit. And um, and and there is very good evidence now that links sugar consumption with weight gain, with excess body fat, with worsening triglycerides, lowering HDL um, and, and a factor in the development of metabolic syndrome. Hmm. So you, there you have it. Yeah. I mean, there's no, listen, we enjoy it. Okay. We know there's also some data suggested it has an addictive properties and you know, 70% of the foods, ultra-processed foods have, you know, foods in the supermarket will have added sugar because the food industry figured out that, you know, it was cheap, it tastes good, it sells, but actually it's probably have some addictive properties that encourage people to overconsume. Yeah, because you, you don't get full. Exactly. And uh, satisfied, you only want more. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because the body hasn't gotten what it needs. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So... Can you tell us a little bit more specific how sugar uh, is, um, how it affects heart disease? What are like the mechanistic triggers within the body? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, one thing that sugar consumption excess does is it increases triglycerides in the blood and lowers HDL and increases what we call small dense LDL particles, which are 
essentially more atherogenic. So these are the LDL particles that are more likely to damage the inner lining of the arteries of the heart. But if we take a step back and look at sugar as one of the dietary villains amongst a few, the others being refined carbohydrates in excess, the very basic thing to understand, um, Victoria, which also links to other lifestyle factors that develop in development of heart disease on a biological level, is insulin resistance. So the body becomes resistant to the hormone insulin over time. So what we want to be doing is keeping your insulin levels relatively low and not eating foods that are going to spike blood glucose. And um, what we know is if insulin is high, insulin has two, it's problematic on two fronts if you have too much insulin. One is it's prothrombotic. It essentially increases the stickiness of blood. It's also pro-inflammatory. It increases chronic inflammation, which then means your body is damaging itself. The tissues are getting damaged. Um, and what causes insulin to be raised, you know, excessively for too long are these foods that raise your blood glucose. So things with added sugar. Sugar also has an indirect effect on insulin resistance through something called um, de novo lipogenesis. So essentially the liver will um, convert a lot of this sugar into liver fat. And the liver fat itself indirectly has an effect on insulin resistance as well. So that's really the, the basic kind of understanding behind this. And that's what we see now, even in younger and younger, they're getting fatty livers, even though they haven't drunk, had any alcohol in their life, but they have fatty livers yeah. due to lots of fructose and um, sugar. Yeah, absolutely. So now we've talked a bit about uh, sugar and, and saturated fats. We've also mentioned um, uh, ultra processed foods. So tell us, what is that? How would people know what is an ultra-processed food? Great question. The major issue. So I've moved on to, you know, being part of um, saying that sugar is a new tobacco, and I still think it is. But actually, I think ultra-processed food is a new tobacco. So ultra-processed food, um, there's a, people want to look this up for reference. There's something called the NOVA, N-O-V-A. It's not an abbreviation. It's just called NOVA classification that came out of Brazil. The researcher who's led work in this area is called Carlos Monteiro. And he's based in a uh, university in Sao Paulo in, uh, in Brazil. And um, they have done a great work in categorizing different levels of processing of food. But ultra-processed food is essentially usually any packaged food that has five or more ingredients, usually with additives and preservatives. And there have been over 30 studies, observation studies now, showing a very clear link with the consumption of these foods independent of body weight, with metabolic disease, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, etc. Um, what's probably going on is, and these foods are usually made up of uh, sugar, refined carbs, combination of that, and, and, and fats and unhealthy oils, is that the food industry have clearly figured out the kind of bliss point of how do you put these ingredients together to get people, make them very hyperpalatable, so enjoyable to eat, but also they probably likely engineered them to be addictive as well. Um, and, uh, and that is a big problem because more than 50% of the calorie consumption in the UK is from ultra processed foods. It's extraordinary, right? So throughout Europe, they've done it. I'm not sure. I haven't got the, the figures in Sweden. I'm sure you can probably look that up. I'm sure there is something there, but this is, so what I tell my patients, if you go to the supermarket, whatever you pick up, if you can read five or more ingredients, don't eat it. And this even includes bread and brown bread, by the way. 
right? So people think brown bread is healthy from the supermarket. No, it's not healthy. Don't eat it, please. If you're going to have, if you really have to have bread, get it from a bakery. And before <laughs> we started this interview, we also talked a little bit about smoothies and uh, things like that. And you think that is so, it's clean, you know what you put in, but what happens when you... Yeah, I mean, a lot of these smoothies have got fruit in them. And of course, you're liquidizing the the fructose and the glucose from the fruit. And then it's causing rapid absorption of glucose into the bloodstream, which is not good for you. So I would I tell people really to avoid smoothies, really, to be honest. You should uh, chew your food. Absolutely. Mm, good point. Because, yeah, you really need to think, how is this, uh, what was this from the beginning and how does it look now? And also, Lotta, you're removing the fiber, Mm. you know, and my colleague um, and friend, pediatric endocrinologist in the US called Robert Lustig, Professor Robert Lustig, you know, who was probably the the first person globally to really, I mean, I, I, you know, I call, he's my guru when it comes to sugar. He has this line that you want to um, feed the gut and protect your liver. So he, you know, for him, fiber is a big, big deal because the fiber will reduce the absorption of the glucose into the bloodstream and uh, will not cause those big spikes in insulin that we are, you know, we should be concerned about. Mm. No, and I know it was Robert Lustig who also did the research about kids and their fatty livers and how quickly you can also reverse it and go back just by reducing sugar. You, they, the two groups, they ate exactly the same amount of calories, yes. but the other group had n- no sugar. Yeah, that, and, um, absolutely. That was within the nine days. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of hope. Yeah. So we want and their to, metabolic syndrome markers improved as well yeah. within nine days. Nine days. That's amazing. Yeah. So that gives a lot of hope because it's not anything you have to struggle with for like decades to see a yeah. difference. And you don't need to join a gym and spend two hours running either. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> that could all that could also mean which, more harm. Which puts people off, actually. Some of the one of the reasons I think that on an individual level this isn't being combated is people think they have to make a huge effort to sort this out because they have to exercise to lose weight. And we know, by the way, separately, you know this, exercise has no effect on weight loss at all. If you have to exercise to lose weight, your diet is wrong, Yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is purely diet. We 100% agree. Yeah. yeah. Mm. We, 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 we agree also that exercise is good and yes. muscle mass is good. Absolutely. But yeah, yeah, yeah. you need mm. to do both. For sure. So apart from food then, and now we've talked a little bit about exercise, but if you would summarize like lifestyle wise, what could people do there? We've mentioned stress for before. Yeah. What what can people do to to protect their heart? Yeah. So I mean, from exercise, let's not ignore that. I think that, that it's about moderate activity. So not being sedentary for prolonged periods of time. And I always tell my patients, you know, try and do a 30 minute brisk walk a day. You know, if you look at the blue zones or areas of these communities which have very high longevity, they were just walking. So walking is a great way to look after your body and your heart. And then um, stress. I think psychosocial stress is a huge problem. It's increasingly so. Um, The way we live, um, we're not getting enough rest and good sleep. And then I think it's also been exacerbated by social media, uh, especially the Instagram culture, Um, you know, encouraging, uh, if you like, narcissism. Um, status anxiety, people comparing themselves to each other, but actually comparing themselves to other people who are not necessarily putting forward a true image of themselves. So we've yeah. we created this fake society and you create fake society, you lose authenticity. Everybody starts behaving fake and that's not good for the human brain. So there's lots of these areas that need to be covered. But when you look at chronic disease, 90% of chronic disease is linked also to stress. 
And certainly with my heart disease patients, almost all of them invariably, whatever diet they're following exercise, have got huge levels of stress. So I usually, you know, tell them that they need to do, be proactive and make it part of a prescription for their life to do something to reduce the stress, whether it's yoga, Pilates, meditation, find something that is going to give you, a, you know, a stress reduction activity for at least 20 to 40 minutes a day. Do you measure stress in any way in your so practice? It's, it's, no, so it's very difficult, I think, in terms of, you would probably know this as, as health coaches in the functional medicine space better than I, but I think, you know, you can do salivary cortisol, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it, it's not always very consistent and helpful. I think I just go, I usually go from either questionnaire or a subjective, you know. Do you I, ever look at HRV? Um, I don't personally look at it, no. I mean, it's very important. I'm not saying it isn't. It's It's quite useful, but... You know, once the patients come to you and they say they're stressed and you know they're stressed, you know what their HRV is not going to be great, right? But, you know, what, what I tell them to do is to try and implement some sort of stress reduction activity. And, the, and you yourself know, people listening, they know, you know when you're stressed, you know when you're not. So these tests are all can be useful, but you don't necessarily need them with everybody. So maybe we live in a world today where you really need to take your stress management seriously and do something every day to calm yourself down. Absolutely, for sure. And that's very important. I think, though, looking at the bigger picture issue, most of these problems we've discussed are environmentally determined. So we have to think about how are we living in society and what do we do to make the default so that we all have less stress, ultimately, right? You know when you go away on holiday or vacation or whatever, automatically you just feel in a different environment, a calmer environment, you feel better. You know, when I went to Piopi, the southern Italian village, which I studied and wrote a book about where they have very high levels of longevity, it was interesting as within a couple of days of just being in this village, this seaside village, it wasn't a very affluent place. My stress levels dropped massively. I was like, wow, mm. you know. So the environment, it has a huge impact on your stress levels. I get calm just hearing you talk about it. <laughs> yeah. but, but also, actually, on that point, I think the other thing that we also neglect, and it's interesting, I mean, it's my first time in Scandinavia, and I'm very interested in different cultures. And uh, I look uh, with admiration at Scandinavia because you have a very good system of healthcare. You have a more egalitarian society, as in the gap between the rich and the poor is less than compared to countries like, for example, in the UK and the US. And with that, when you have more equal societies, you have less psychosocial stress. People are not necessarily comparing themselves to each other, something called status anxiety. But what's very important, certainly, when it comes to your mental health and physical health and longevity is the quality of your relationships. So sense of community And having meaningful, good quality relationships is also a very powerful protector from these external stresses. So I, you know, I, I mean, you may laugh at this, but I've started to encourage my patients, you know, that they should be, if, whoever they are, with their partners or friends, whatever, is be hugging more, you know, um, things like that, you know, touch, hugs, whatever, very therapeutic, reduce your stress levels, not just to some random person, but you know. You <laughs> that know. could be stressful. Yeah, 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 exactly. It could no, be stressful. the other person. <laughs> but that is so powerful. And that's also what we're working with as health coaches, all those small little things that you don't think matter, but that you do them regularly, like hugs, oh, yes. like breathing, like yeah. going out, having fresh air, taking a walk, having a laughter with your friend, you know. Absolutely. Everything, all those small things yeah. count so much for your health 100 
and you even look evolution from an evolutionary perspective, one of the things that certainly has a big impact on determining people's long-term health is the um, is conditions in which people are are born are born and grow. So that relationship that the mother has with the child is so important, the nurturing relationship, because it the child feels protected. And that actually can predict disease many, many years down the line. You know, I mean, some of the stuff um, which has very good scientific basis is, you know, that the very extreme levels of childhood trauma, child abuse, for example, those people have a lifespan which is 20 years less than average, right? So we just to think about that from that perspective in terms of our mind and what we are doing and who we're interacting with and are the people in our social group increasing our sense of well-being? Because if they're not, then you should get them out of your life. And that's another <laughs> aspect of the heart, more love in Absolutely. your life. Absolutely, 100%, 100%. Um, we were laughing and joking yesterday at the dinner with, with some, uh, some of your colleagues, but... Um, And this is an observational study, so, you know, people can poke holes in it. But it's interesting anyway. So a study done many years ago, I think it was published in the Journal of American College of Cardiology, or JAMA. And they did an observational study. And this was related to uh, relationships, basically. And they found that middle-aged men that had sex twice a week versus once a month had 50% less likely to develop heart disease. But I'm sure when you look into that in detail, it's more about, it's not about, you know, it's it's about the quality of that relationship. It's probably a marker mm. of the quality of those relationships being good for your health. Mm, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> so that I hope that's not a bit of a taboo topic for, for Swedes to be Not for Swedes, no. no, okay, no. <laughs> <laughs> but moving on a little bit, you're here in Stockholm right now because you're gonna, you're one of the speakers of the uh, National Sugar-Free Day we have here on October 12th. So could you spill, this This going to air after your talk, but of course. could you still spill away a little bit about your, no, of course, what you're going to talk about? So, so my talk is uh, called Action on Sugar, The science alone isn't enough. So people listening to this be like, hold on a minute, but if that information's out there and this is all correct, then why are we doing what we're doing the opposite way? Why is our doctor telling us something else? And in this sort of um, advocacy role I have as a public health advocate to try and get this information out there, you realize and you learn, and I've experienced that myself, that the scientific Uh, quality of the scientific information that helps people get healthier, which we're talking about today, on its own is not enough to change things because you are going to come across very powerful vested interests that profit from giving people the wrong information. So my talk is going to basically explain how did I, just as a normal, regular, standard, you know, interventional cardiology doctor, you know, operating on people, how did I go from that phase to a point where we managed to get a sugary drinks tax introduced in the in the UK and I was named or considered the lead campaigner that made that happen but you have to fight for it and you have to be prepared that you are going to get attacks along the way and um you know uh you know unless your work is uncontroversial as soon as what you are doing threatens an industry or an ideology you will be attacked sometimes viciously and unrelentingly and I have gone through that process myself on many occasions 
Um, but I think people just need to be aware that if they are going to do this, that's, but you know, if you're on, ultimately it's, um, about doing the right thing, but being prepared to have a, uh, a thick skin, uh, and also somehow take it as a backhanded compliment. If you're doing something that's important and you are getting attacked on a high level in the press or whatever else, you know, it means that you're having an impact. Yeah, as they wouldn't bother otherwise. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, one of my um, uh, inspirations is Mahatma Gandhi. And one of his quotes is, um, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Yeah. Mm. So, as you said, the science is there when it comes to sugar and its dangers to our health. Why don't you think that the governments are doing more? I think it's mainly because of too much um, power in the wrong place. So with the very industries that, again, are profiting from, um, you know, selling people toxic food, in, in essence. Uh, and, you know, we, c we can learn lessons from how we combated tobacco, how tobacco control happened. So, you know, it took 50 years from the first peer-reviewed publication in the BMJ that showed a clear link between smoking and lung cancer before we had regulations that curbed tobacco consumption. And the reason it took 50 years is because the tobacco industry adopted what we call a corporate playbook of planting doubt that cigarettes were harmful, confusing the public, um, downright denial, and even buying the loyalty of scientists and politicians. Scientists being bought, right? Science for hire. So... We can learn, you know, I've written about this, but you can learn lessons from how we combated tobacco and all the challenges we had over several decades and then now apply that to the food industry. Uh, and a very um, distinguished professor of psychology in the United States called Kelly Brownell, he wrote a great paper, and if people, and it's open access, it is an amazing read. It gives you all of the ammunition, if you like, to understand how we can all contribute to changing this corrupted system let's be honest it's a corrupted system of healthcare um and it's called big tobacco played dirty and millions died how similar is big food wow okay yeah it's and it's going to be so interesting to hear you talk about this so yeah looking forward to that i think i think people often will feel helpless in this situation even if they become aware it's like what can i do about it you know but i think we just have to all as Uh, citizens harness that power that we actually have and we haven't tapped into to change that system mm. you know ultimately um this is about informed democracy and if you present people with all the information and you present a moral argument then my belief is that this isn't about, this is just Dr. Malhotra's opinion and he's pointing his finger and whatever else. Let's have an open discussion about it. Let's have a, 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 you know, let's get everybody's views and then let's suggest what are the ways forward. And through democratic means, we can change those structures and those laws that are going to give people better health but also give our kids a better future. Yeah. So very good. We're very grateful for the work that you do. So thank you very much for that. We have two last questions for you. Sure. Questions that we uh, uh, ask all our guests. Okay. 
so one of them is if you have a daily routine that you do in order to feel well and healthy. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, um, so I, I, you know, I have a routine. I'm quite particular about certain things. You know, I make sure for me personally. I mean, that's just this is just me, but I'm uh, an early riser, so I go to bed early. I found that I'm more most creative in terms of my writing because a lot of the stuff I do is to get this information is through writing, and that is in the morning. So usually in the morning, I will I will read something often, and I will write. So. Uh, I realize this about myself, but I think this applies to a lot of other people. From a mental perspective, I'm always trying to learn something new. So I'll either read a new research paper or I'm reading a book. And I, you know, often sometimes because when I'm writing something, I will, you know, it sounds crazy, but, um, you know, uh, recently I was reading five books simultaneously, but we're all linked in some way to try and, you know, cut through all of this information to try and put it into something that most people could understand and could help change their lives for the better. So my routine is essentially, I usually, um, I'll do some reading, I'll write in the morning, um, you know, and after having my breakfast, then I, I go to the gym. I'm, I'm the first, literally the first person in the gym, because um, I just like to start the day and I'll, you know, mix it up with whatever, a bit of weight training, a bit of cardio, that kind of stuff. Um, and then, yeah, uh, I'm usually having patient consultations. I, uh, m- my diet, I would say, is probably... A, a moderate, low-carb, Mediterranean-style diet. So what do you have for breakfast? So my breakfast is uh, varied, but actually I have sugar-free oats for breakfast, usually with uh, blueberries um, and some dark chocolate and some flaxseed and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, because I'm quite active, I do find that I need, um, you know, I need some um, high-fiber grains if you like to you know the for me for weight training stuff that's that's just how i my body reacts to it so that's typical breakfast for me and then for lunch either a salad um you know or uh some eggs or steak or avocado i mean whatever and then i am also i love cooking so i learned to cook from my my dad and i've been cooking for about 25 years so most days of the week i cook and i cook either mediterranean food uh, a lot of seafood I eat, or Indian food. I'm Indian origin, so I cook a lot of Indian food. So for me, I find that quite relaxing as well, cooking. Mm. Good. And then the final question, <laughs> maybe the hardest, I don't know. If you only can or are allowed to do one thing for your health, what would that be? Ooh. Um, is this just for me personally, or is this for everybody? Okay, for everybody... The one thing I would say more than anything else is make sure um, that you are eating food, understanding that it's having a, a huge positive impact on your body or a negative impact, depending on what you're eating. So I would say that the food is the most important thing. Um, for me personally, right now, in terms of the phase I'm in my life, thinking where am I, where do I need to improve things for my mental and physical health, I think it's about making sure I spend more time with my friends and family. When you're involved in this space and you get so absorbed being an activist, sometimes those things can get neglected. But for me, as a human, I'm happier when I'm around people and I'm around people that increase my sense of well-being. So that's something I'm working on to do more of. Good. Great answer. 
great. Um, and if people uh, want to follow your work, where would you direct them? Um, yeah, so I, uh, because a lot of my activism work is something that, you know, you do and you, you don't get paid for, I, I have a, a Patreon account. So that's a crowdfunding thing where I give people exclusive blogs and even Zoom chats and all that kind of stuff. So you can look at my Patreon if they want to contribute to that. Um, and then I'm on Twitter as Dr. Seymour Hotra. I'm on Facebook, Instagram as Lifestyle Medicine Doctor. And essentially most of those, almost those exclusively those handles are used to educate people and get my campaigning work out there. Um, so that's why I use those social media handles. Great. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us and giving us so much valuable information and knowledge. Yeah. My pleasure. And thank you so much for the work you do too. Thank you. It's a team effort. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.